I'm Rick Dedarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. The destruction and human devastation caused by the wars in Yugoslavia in the 1990s were like nothing experienced in Europe since World War II. Over 20 years on, the repercussions of the breakup of Yugoslavia continue to reverberate. Orly Friedman, a professor in the Faculty of Media and Communications at Singadunum University in Belgrade, has spent the past two decades studying how memory activists in Serbia and the region confront the memory of this past. What are the goals of these memory activists, and what challenges do they face? What strategies have they used, and how successful have they been? How has memory activism changed across generations and worked across borders? To answer these questions and more, I'm very pleased to welcome Orly Friedman. Orly, thanks for taking time to join this episode of Realms of Memory. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start just with a question about your own background. That's where you start in your book, and you talk about uh, how your interest in the region really was, uh, the region of Yugoslavia, and Serbia in particular, was shaped by your own experience growing up in, in, in Israel. So how, how do the memoryscapes of your own country um, shape your, your interest in this region? Yes, I think this is a, a thought that has been kind of uh, uh, with me for a long time since uh, since I would say I entered my own uh, education in my undergrad and graduate uh, work well into uh, afterwards doing research. Uh, I keep thinking comparatively of uh, conflicts more broadly and of course of memory uh, politics. And I became interested in thinking about our own memory scapes and the places where we come from and grow up or our mnemonic socializations, uh, if you want, and how those shape the questions we ask, the research we do, the topics we uh, work on. And I think as I begin, uh, actually, in my uh, book, for me, growing up in Israel in a very uh, sort of being a product of a, a, a a system, a very indoctrinized uh, system, never met meeting Palestinians until I started my undergraduate studies, but also never being exposed to their own uh, narratives, let alone memories and histories, right? And in that sense, thinking of memoryscapes that clash through uh, days on the calendar was an early experience for me when I came to understand that the day when we were celebrating the Independence Day of the State of Israel actually marked for Palestinians the Nakba Day, the great of the day of their uh, disaster and the expulsion of approximately 750,000 Palestinians for what became the State of Israel. And so coming to know about it and actually needing to sort of engage with alternative knowledge uh, and what will become, in my understanding, also counter-memories was a very uh, challenging uh, process intellectually, emotionally, in terms of my citizenship, my uh, political upbringing and identity. And this happened all through my uh, uh, years at the university, uh, first in Hebrew University and then in Tel Aviv University. And I think one more thing probably in that uh, trajectory is I remember the first time I did participate in a protest on Israel's Independence Day. And that was the first time I sort of didn't celebrate the day itself, but I understood sort of the injustice that is that has been ongoing uh, for many years, and this was this takes us back to the the late nineties, right uh, before the collapse of the Oslo Agreements, uh, and so I, I would say this is briefly uh, uh, coming to know uh, in a society that uh, didn't want to engage with what I later understood as unwanted memories on one hand, and also. Uh, this upbringing in uh, spaces of denial very uh, deep uh, layers of silence and political denial that sort of made me very interested to look, look into these processes, uh, first comparatively, but uh, also kind of zooming into eventually 
the case of Serbia, but also looking at other places in the world that are uh, dealing with the deep processes of denial and also searching for those who are trying to engage with the anti-denial work, what I call in the book and engage with memory activism. And if you want kind of actions uh, from below that break silences in the society. So for listeners who, who aren't familiar with the human impact of, of the wars in, in, in the former Yugoslavia, how seismic was, was this past? I mean, what kind of impact did it have? How many, in what ways uh, and on what scale did, did it affect the, the people in the region? Yeah, I would say the, the impact of uh, the violent breakup of Yugoslavia is still something that you can uh, really feel even today, even when, when we speak about decades after uh, these wars. Some of the processes are uh, still ongoing. You can even look at today's mass uh, protests, uh, recent mass protests in Serbia against uh, violence and trace some of the dynamics that the that have emerged here in in this period back to the legacies of the 90s and of the wars, right? And in Serbia, the legacies of the 90s are not only the wars, and I speak about it, uh, I I kind of uh, tell the story of the 90s uh, in the book in a sense of, uh, yes, a number of wars, uh, from the war in Croatia to the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina to the war in Kosovo over a decade of warmongering and war politics, yet also internally uh, uh, tremendous uh, challenges from mass anti-regime protests to mass migration to a collapse of the monetary system and everyday uh, life and sociability in in the country. In the region itself, the impact of the uh, the war, to kind of address your question more uh, specifically, means that nowadays we have completely new borders that have uh, also uh, generated and created uh, new identities. There's much less mobility of people in the region than there was during uh, the existence of Yugoslavia itself. Uh, there's uh, the human losses. We are We know we can... Uh, say and the number of the victims were established. We are talking about approximately 140,000 people, 100,000 alone in Bosnia Herzegovina. So this was sort of the the most uh, bloody war from all the the wars. We are uh, still we can uh, trace the impact of mass displacement uh, of then refugees, but also internally displaced people, um, about 4 million people who were displaced, and half of them were from Bosnia-Herzegovina itself. These are uh, today small uh, countries, so you can imagine the impact of of this. Uh, The question of missing people is still in um, the region uh, unresolved. The the highest number of missing people probably today is still in in, uh, Kosovo. Profound demographic change from multi-ethnic spaces and cities to a, a homogeneity of those uh, ethnic homogeneity of those uh, spaces. If you want, some scholars have addressed this sort of tribal the process of tribalism, mass major economic devastation, economic decline that in. Uh, uh, some of the spaces didn't really uh, uh, bounce back. Uh, And for me, dealing with the question of the uh, uh, human being who deal with the past here, of course, the biggest challenge is the uh, throughout the regional, uh, the region nationalist and exclusionary discourses governed by politics of denial. When we speak about denial, more specifically, denial of war crimes, uh, of course, denial of political responsibility, uh, and uh, governed also by politics of victimization and historical revisionism. So the last point that I've just 
uh, introduced probably is where the uh, memory activists have the hardest uh, uh, task to even engage with these issues uh, critically. Hmm. So you mentioned, though, that there was a moment in time uh, in the early 2000s where there was a lot of optimism that there could be some kind of effort to confront the past, some kind of national catharsis, that there were significant political changes, mobilization of the people. Uh, What was that period of optimism and, and why did it not pan out? Yes, so um, to try and explain that, we have to go probably to, uh, say, the period that built up to October 2000, October 5th, 2000, the the ousting of uh, Milosevic and uh, his uh, regime. And I think from the many conversations that I had with uh, people who were there in the streets in the months building to this uh, event, eventually on October 5th, the hopes were high. The hopes for change were high after, uh, say, a decade that uh, many people have referred to a sort of abnormality, right? Uh, and yet after uh, Milosevic was brought down and eventually also was sent to The Hague, then some people would say, okay, the person itself, he was, uh, he was gone, but the system that he created was very much still in place. And we, uh, again, uh, those who follow the events in Serbia today can even see some of it uh, in a clear way. And so the hopes were, uh, I would say initially, not just the question of dealing with the past, but as I mentioned, some of the dynamics of Serbia in the 90s were hopes. The hopes were to sort of re-enter the family of the nations, be be, be accepted back uh, uh, on one hand, but also go back to living in a functioning uh, in a functioning society, in a functioning state, and enter the process of democratization in Serbia. And this process, the hope was that will also entail uh, the questions of the, by some, for some, it was the hope that this will also include uh, dealing with the crimes committed in the 90s, uh, and uh, moving uh, forward with the acknowledgement of those and the question, the political responsibility. Uh, and in that sense, some people uh, have argued, you know, October 5th happened, but October 6th never came. The first years after October uh, 5th, there were some actors from, of course, led by uh, Zoran Jinjic and others from the opposition, and some of the act, major actors, say, from the opposition and even in anti-war circles were then in positions of uh, top advisors to the new regime and even entering uh, parliament and government. But after the assassination of Zoran Jinjic in uh, March 2003, it became clear then that uh, uh, the country is going in a complete different direction than what they were hoping. Having said that, for some politically, this made sense. They weren't hoping for that change that, uh, say, the, the more uh, liberal and for sure anti-war uh, circles uh, were aiming to. And I think uh, in that sense, in the book, I also speak a little bit uh, and in previous research about the difference between tracing the anti-war actions and anti-war, say, demonstrations during the 90s and the anti-regime demonstrations. And they weren't always overlapping with their political aspirations and uh, hopes. Hmm. But, I mean, is it fair to say that uh, if maybe there was a moment of time, there was an opportunity, but... that didn't happen in part because there was a lot of institutional continuity. That really reminds me of uh, my episodes on uh, what happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union and why did they not confront the past more aggressively. And there were a lot of institutions that just carry over and a lot of pride uh, about their their roots in the Soviet past. Um, uh, and they really didn't clean the house out when they had, had the chance. Um, 
in part, you know, who knows? Maybe there's a concern about the instability uh, that, that could result from that. Um, um, but uh, there's a lot of it. To me, it seems like there's a tremendous amount of, of continuity just in terms of the leadership that how do you aggressively cr- confront the past if your leadership is still implicated in that past? Right. And uh, there was no illustration process uh, in this country. And the attempt to uh, undo the, the, say, criminalization of the system in some ways by Zoranjic, it had, uh, you know, was brought to an end, right? Uh, in some ways, among other things that he was uh, trying to do. So, yes, in that sense, the the structures uh, have remained and were not uh, transformed. I think that's one of uh, um, uh, Jenny uh, Wustenberg's uh, points, is that uh, you've got to wait for a generation of people to leave the scene. Um, and... And then there's a, there's a greater possibility of, of change that you've got kind of built in resistance with the people who are part of the old order. I just uh, one of my first inter I think my very first interview here in 2004 when I was here for a year doing my research for my dissertation was with the late Srebrenica Turajlic. Uh, Srebrenica Turajlic was a, a a university professor who uh, was a very important figure in supporting the students' uh, demonstrations and protests in the 1990s and in the political life of the uh, what they call at the time Druga Serbia, the other Serbia. Uh, she passed away uh, uh, recently, uh, yet at the time... And, and, you know, after 2000, she was an important figure also in advising uh, uh, the new regime. But at the time, she told me, and it echoes with what you just uh, said, uh, she said, I truly believe no person from my generation, she referred to her own generation, uh, who lived through the 90s as adults and and have witnessed uh, what happened in in their society, no one from my generation should hold an official uh, position and role in this society moving forward. And of course, that was her wish, right? It resembles then the wish to sort of uh, uh, reset and restart and see a, a new generation come in and to take over those who are not part of uh, leading this country in the 90s. And yet, of course, it didn't happen. A big theme in your in your book is the importance of uh, of calendars, uh, and uh, you know, in many ways, nations borrow from organized religion, setting up their own sacred calendars to to uh, you know to, to to anchor people in a shared community of meaning. Uh, and uh, so, you have the breakup of Yugoslavia, and now you have these seven separate countries that come out of that that one nation, and they all have to construct their new national calendars uh, and denialism you point point out is a common theme so how does that work in terms of the the new calendar in in serbia what uh, how is it constructed uh, to reinforce denialism what are the new hol- uh, holidays and rituals that uh, are supposed to uh, anchor people in, in in a new serbian identity that they can be proud of Right. So, so it's not only about denialism, right? From the point of view of uh, the state of Serbia, it has uh, different uh, uh, dynamics, one of which we're now talking about sort of the post-Yugoslav calendar, the post uh, uh, sort of uh, leaving behind and breaking with the Yugoslav past and the socialist past. So in many ways, uh, as we know, it's going back to the pre-Yugoslav time to sort of restructure the social organization of the calendar and anchor it in the 19th century and to center sort of events and symbols, but also some values from the 19th century in terms of creating new identity, new discourses and a value system. And for me, the, the idea of calendars is, is very interesting and it builds on the uh, works of uh, scholars like Evietal Zulbovel and 
Yael Zrubovel, very early scholars of our field of memory studies before we even called it the field of memory studies who thought about the social organization of uh, our memory and say if we think about the calendar as a site of memory. And the idea that the calendar can be edited and re-edited, right? So if the master commemorative narrative of Yugoslavia had the Yugoslav calendar with its most important holidays that sort of celebrated uh, uh, Tito's birthday um, or celebrated the establishment of Yugoslavia on the 29th of uh, uh, November and had its own uh, uh, rituals and commemorative events around that. Uh, in the aftermath of uh, Yugoslavia, yes, as, as you mentioned in your question, each of the successor states will now sort of uh, recreate its own calendar. And in Serbia, it's a process that is very much ongoing. Actually, as I was writing the book, there was a new holiday that appeared on the calendar and was introduced to the people. And I, I sort of uh, uh, had a chance to uh, last minute add some additions to my uh, to the chapter about the Serbian calendar. I think also I was able throughout my uh, different stages of research to really trace the this creation of the new calendar. Um, as I show from a day like uh, Dan Brezhavnosti, the day of the state, that was uh, uh, first introduced, but no one actually uh, knew about it. And so how do you establish a date, but also then create some uh, rituals around the date that, uh, that uh, first people know about it and know about the meaning and what what do they do on that day and how they actually engage with celebration. So this sort of more broadly about the, the Serbian calendar, particularly in my interest, because my interest is in the memories of the 90s or the unwanted memories of the 90s, I was interested to see what on the Serbian calendars does allow engagement to the public with the uh, legacies of the 90s, right? And uh, uh, if you want, I can I can get into uh, it a little bit more in, in explaining. Yeah, because that. if you're going to put dates on that calendar, people have to be able to relate to them for them to for those dates to resonate. So you've got to you've got to include things that people can identify with. It's, it might be more challenging if you're trying to trying to refer back to something that happened in the 19th century or, or earlier. Right, so it's a process of creating new identities, right? And that's why it is. it was so fascinating, again, for coming from a very indoctrinated society around a very specific calendar that we all grew up on and, and sort of followed very uh, uh, seriously through the education system, through the youth movement, through the, the state-sponsored event, I began also to understand the calendar. Yes, on one hand, it is the state-sponsored calendar, which now sort of allows people to, as you say, identify uh, or regroup around certain uh, ideas and narratives and, and stories that we tell ourselves. Yet at the same time, in very divided societies, what we see is that we can uh, identify also alternative calendars, Right, so the not only the one that is sort of the hegemonic one, the one that is acknowledged and run by the state and its administration of the uh, of the past and the memory, but what if I will look into alternative calendars and how sort of actors from below can engage with now creating new rituals uh, of uh, uh, commemorations that in a way clash with the state uh, po uh, me memory politics, hence the state calendar, right? And then this is sort of a very interesting uh, process uh, as well to follow. And uh, now, of course, in order to identify the alternative calendar and analyze those, we have to put them side by side with the uh, state-sponsored calendars. Yeah, what, so what are, so you mentioned that, that there are events it's not com complete amnesia about the 1990s. I mean, there are 
events that are incorporated in significant rituals that uh, that that are are uh, that have have been uh, gaining momentum that uh, are on the calendar. So, how is the 1990s and the wars uh, in the region? How are they included into the official calendar? So, the official calendar uh, sort of have uh, chose to mark uh, events that have to do only with uh, Serbian victimhood. Right, so we have uh, two main events that appear on uh, today's calendar of Serbia: the beginning of the NATO bombing uh, on March twenty fourth, and uh, which sort of also kind of uh, was a process of cementing uh, discourses of NATO aggression against Serbia and very much of a political of the victimization and, and very much also detached completely from what happened during the 90s and before, uh, sorry, during the bombing and before in Kosovo itself. And this event was not placed on the calendar, say, right away in the year 2000 or 2001. In, in fact, Zoran Djinic himself, in the years that he was in power, was very much against uh, um, placing this event as a central event on uh, uh, the commemorative landscape, let's say, in uh, Serbia. So I, I, I think it's fair to say from 2015, 2016, it all, and on it becomes a much more sort of central uh, uh, event, which is uh, then there's a, commemorate, a commemoration which is broadcasted live on TV, etc., the other event is uh, Operation Storm, sort of marking uh, Uluya, Operation Storm, that uh, uh, culminates in early August uh, 1995, which actually uh, commemorates the expulsion and, uh, of Serbs from, uh, from Croatia, the ethnic cleansing if you want, of Croatia from a Serb population and sort of the images of the columns of refugees sort of being uh, on their way to the border with uh, Serbia. And again, as I uh, started um, in, in the beginning of our conversation, uh, there's uh, events, these are events that mirror each other if we bring together conflict and memory studies, right? So August 5th, is celebrated in Croatia as the day of the victory and homeland thanksgiving day and the day of the Croatian defenders, while in Serbia it's being a, a sort of day of mourning, again, very much in a, in a centralized, way, centralized way from 2015 and on. And also with the NATO bombing, it's interesting to see the mirroring of it when in Kosovo, they mark the end of sort of the entrance of the NATO uh, ground forces to uh, uh, Kosovo um, after the end of the bombing on June 10th and the entrance uh, on June 12th of the uh, NATO forces. So it sort of uh, mirror each other and uh, politically speaking and mnemonically speaking, there is very little conversation between these uh, dates and the, the, the way they're being commemorated. And that's, I think, part of what the memory activists themselves are uh, attempting to do uh, worldwide, and particularly in this case, uh, as I explained, in Serbia and in the region. But, I mean, your sense that the, this, the, the way in which the, the state is commemorating the 1990s, does it, does it work? I mean, do people buy into it? Does it resonate with, with people? Well, again, I think uh, Serbia is a very divided society, <laughs> right? And so it resonates with people who uh, uh, sort of adhere more to uh, the nationalist and uh, exclusionary discourses in Serbia. Uh, and of course, as time goes by, there's also new generations who are being taught these narratives in school. That's the only thing they know. And they don't know to put the NATO bombing in the broader context of even what led to it, right? And so it resonates with the people who also adhere with the present uh, regime, but also with nationalism 
uh, in this country, and it's extremely uncomfortable and uh, um, something you have to uh, uh, combat if you are in a position of uh, saying wanting a, a Serbia that will head in a very different direction than it was heading so far. The beginnings of your work on memory activism really go to the women in black, right? And uh, and your own work is really on peace activism, uh, and that's where they start. So, who who are who, what is this this group? How do they evolve over time from from being peace activists to memory activists? And and uh, you know what what kind of tactic tactics do they use? Right. So my my book actually puts forward this the, the frame, the main frame methodologically that I used was through the generational uh, belongings of memory activists, right? And I try to trace the uh, continuation and change from one generation to another. And, uh, and that also uh, sort of goes back to, to my earlier work, uh, on uh, anti-war activism and peace activism. And the Women in Black were one of the first groups I actually uh, joined when I began my uh, my uh, research here and, and traced their uh, activism, say, in the aftermath of the wars and very much also trying to, to learn at the time of what they did during the wars. And the Women in Black, and, and I heard about the women in black because they model after the Israeli women in black who were uh, standing for many years, unfortunately not so much anymore, uh, on Fridays, a weekly uh, silent vigil against the occupation, the Israeli occupation of Palestine and of Palestinians' lives, right? And so the women in black were created here in Serbia the very early stages of the war in Croatia as a feminist and anti-militarist and anti-nationalist group, and of course for peace against the war. And they took the, the, the practice of the Israeli women in black, yet I would argue implemented in a much more uh, strict way because the the initial idea was that they were doing a, a weekly a silent vigils in downtown Belgrade, especially during the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, later on, during the war in Kosovo, they uh, couldn't really do it, especially once the NATO bombing began. It was unsafe for them to even stay here. And so I uh, uh, try to understand their actions at the time. And of course, they were uh, in, a network, in a broader networks of other uh, groups that have become a sort of a non-governmental organizations and civil society groups who were uh, resisting the war. But while some of these groups were say, withdrawing to the offices, writing reports. There were also groups that were documenting war crimes as they were happening. The Women in Black kept their sort of uh, idea of street action, right? That the action has to happen in the street. It has to interact with uh, the, the citizen, the fellow citizens in the street and send a message uh, against the war. And as I said, they took a much uh, stricter uh, understanding of the silent vigils because they were really sort of while the Israeli uh, women in black began answering back when people were cursing them or uh, sort of shaming them in the street. Uh, uh, here in Serbia, they sort of the principle was that you never answer back when you're standing in the street with a sign against the war, dressed in black. Uh, and people insult you or even try to hurt you, you never answer back. Which they do, right? They do get insulted, and there are efforts to, to lash very out at them. Very much so, very much so. And so in the first year when I joined them, I, I realized they actually established, for, they're no longer a, a sort of in anti-war activism. What they're doing, it became clear to me as I was doing the research and, and even uh, later on, they're engaging uh, profoundly with sort of the past and the recent past and the 90s, right? And that's what I covered in my research. By the way, they also engage with 
uh, with other memories has to do with memories of Yugoslavia. They uh, they uh, engage also with the rehabilitation of uh, uh, figures like Draž Mihailović or others from uh, World War Two, right? So they engage also with issues with the memories of uh, World War Two and Yugoslavia. I focus mostly on their engagement with the. Uh, an insistence on remembering the crimes committed in the 90s in their name, right? And that's hence their slogan, not in my name. And they sort of uh, position themselves as this generation that uh, lived through this event, has living memories of these events. They were already adults uh, during the 90s, very much also Yugoslavs in their identity and uh, of course feminist in their actions and in their claims and, uh, and and that's how I sort of trace this shift from the anti-war activism to memory activism and I also show how actually they have created through their activism in the aftermath of the war the wars an alternative calendar and this calendar is a printed calendar. They actually print and, and share their, their own calendar as a group with their uh, members and uh, sympathizers and supporters from other civil society groups. Um, but they also have a certain calendar which they still uh, follow in street actions throughout the years to mark events, let's say, such as the beginning of the siege on Sarajevo to the siege on Vukovar to what I claim is the most important event on their alternative calendar, the commemoration of uh, uh, Srebrenica as a genocide in downtown Belgrade. Hmm. And the way they commemorate that, that especially that most important event, it's not static, right? It changes over time. Right. I was able to to trace this commemoration truly over a, a longer period of time. Uh, first, when I was doing research uh, on that, but then when I, I returned and, and continued to live here every year, I would attend uh, with them as many others, uh, as some other people from uh, the city, the July 10th. The event, uh, and they and they chose to commemorate Srebrenica on July the 10th in uh, Republic Square because on July 11th, which is the official day of commemoration, they travel to Potocari next to Srebrenica to the site of memory and to the to to partake in the official commemorations there, where they uh, also meet with the mothers of uh, Srebrenica. And they, here they, they do a street action, yes, which looks uh, very creative and uh, also uh, engages uh, groups like uh, the Dach Theater from Belgrade. And so they're doing street performance. Uh, and every year it, it, uh, it looks a little bit different than the year before with some themes that always uh, continue. For example, it's important for them to to uh, say it out loud and through their banners that they acknowledge Srebrenica as a genocide, uh, while the country itself, an official uh, uh, state-sponsored memory in Serbia, does not. And then you mentioned, too, what reading the names of the victims uh, out loud is something that's, that's a part of the evolution of how they commemorate that. This was one year. So uh, one year they were reading the the names of the victims who were identified and buried that year, right? Because not all the victims of Srebrenica were uh, yet found and identified. And it's an ongoing process. And every year there is a whole, uh, the part of what builds up to the commemoration in Potocari on July 11th is the sort of a, a, a delivery of the remains of those found uh, during that year to be buried in, uh, in the uh, graveyard in uh, Potocari. And in that sense, uh, it, it is still an ongoing process, right? It's, it's not uh, over yet. So uh, uh, what I saw was that in one year, they uh, gathered and stood for the silent vigil, but also 
uh, that he read all the names of the victims who were about to be, uh, be buried the next day in Potocari. Uh, other years, they uh, sort of stand with the, the letters of Srebrenica, uh, putting forward also the number of the victims, uh, 8,372, and sort of standing with that, but also uh, with some performance and action around that. In another year, they called uh, citizens to bring uh, uh, shoes. They collected shoes in attempt in, in an idea that they will create sort of a, a monument to Srebrenica in Belgrade. Uh, and in other years, they uh, bring uh, flowers and eventually walk to the bridge above the river and sort of let go of the flowers uh, there. So really every year there's different uh, performance that they uh, choose to do. So it really reminds me of my episode on uh... Uh, forensic memory in Spain, and, and part of the, the the effort to break the silence is to reclaim the uh, the recognition for for people who were disappeared in in the public space. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think here there's also, I mean, it's to acknowledge that it's also to to, to offer their acknowledgement. Uh, it's also to uh, remember and to remind. So it, they're not only, it's not only that they're remembering, they're also insisting on reminding the passerby. And mind you, it happens every year in July, July, the summer, uh, the city is packed, everyone is out. In, re- in recent years, there's more also uh, tourists in Belgrade, maybe something that we didn't see here uh, 20 years ago. Now it looks like much more like a... A, a city that uh, receives the summer and they're standing in the very heart of uh, uh, of the city and insisting in, in many ways on that memory, uh, which is one of the unwanted uh, events and memories that happened in the 90s. So what's the significance of doing this in Republic Square? It's the very center of the city. Right. And as I said, they always kept this idea of the street action. And for them, the street action, meaning you're, you're in direct contact with the fellow citizens, with passersby. And yes, there will be those who will be there for the counter, say, a protest against them. But there will be those who will pass by and see that and may kind of interact with that uh, as part of sort of uh, alternative knowledge even that they're bringing into the city center again in a way that in a city that doesn't have any uh, street names or names of uh, squares or na- or anything that marks uh, some of those uh, events that happened in the 90s. So the significance of that is sort of to bring back the claim of taking a political responsibility on these uh, events by remembering them, right, in the very uh, city center, if you want. And this is, again, a practice that they also stood in the city center uh, in the 90s and in the anti-war uh, silent vigil uh, during, say, as I mentioned, the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So you have a younger generation of activists uh, that you you point out they they continue to to commemorate some of the same events they uh, continue to hold similar uh, uh, protest vigils uh, but then they innovate in, in, in significant ways and then they emphasize other histories uh, that are maybe closer closer to their generation in time. How, how does the memory work evolve with uh, with a younger generation of activists? Right. So this is what I call the second generation of memory activists. The the first is the the women in black and other groups as well as uh, that was a, a sort of belongs to that generation, if you want, from the Helsinki Committee for Human Rights or from the Humanitarian Law Center. And, uh, and other actors, and that's the first generation. The second generation, I mostly uh, trace the, the group uh, called uh, the Youth Initiative for Human Rights. But again, other uh, members of other groups or also citizens of the city who belong to that generation and join their 
actions, even if they're not specifically members of this uh, group. And what I wanted to see was exactly if, if I can trace some, on one hand, continuation and on the other hand, uh, a change, both in the claims that they're making and, and putting forward, but also in their um, practices, mnemonic practices. And so uh, one thing I, I uh, highlight, for example, is the change of the slogan. If uh, the women in black have a number of slogans, the one I, I, I sort of uh, put forward was the not in my name as their generational belonging. Uh, the youth initiative back somewhere in 2015, I noticed that they came up with a new slogan where they claimed that they're too young to remember yet determined never to forget. And so this is sort of, again, their generational uh, claim and taking that sort of uh, stand towards uh, the past. And then I, I, I saw, I, I was uh, analyzing the way they take, they continue some of the uh, um, events that the women in black were marking on their calendar, they continue also to mark those, yet sometimes trying, so they either join the existing uh, alternative commemoration or they try to also kind of come up with their own. So one of the examples of their own is to take the events of Srebrenica, yet to insist on remember those in Belgrade on July 11 itself. So instead of traveling with the women in black that they used to do at the beginning, to Potocari, to stay in Belgrade, and to uh, continue and engage in the public and in public spaces with this otherwise very silenced memory. Uh, <coughs> the other event that I uh, analyzed, that the, the, the second generation uh, engages with, uh, I think, in a very interesting way, has to do with the... Uh, crimes committed uh, during the war in Kosovo and more broadly with the war in Kosovo, right? And this is sort of the burden of a very silenced and buried past. There's very little discussions and conversations about the war in Kosovo, as I said, beyond, say, the NATO bombing and the crimes committed against Serbs in, uh, in Kosovo. And so I uh, was able to trace some of their uh, claims and actions as, uh, for example, relate to the existence of mass graves that were found in uh, Serbia and even in uh, the outskirts of Belgrade, in Batajnica, where uh, uh, remains of Albanians' victims were uh, uh, buried and found later in mass graves uh, in uh, in Serbia. And again, this when these events happen, uh, there is very uh, little discussion about them, uh, and that's part of what they're uh, trying to do. So on one hand, it's introducing new commemorative events and practices. Also online, we can get to speak about the the use of the digital. Uh, memory practices, but also uh, through uh, artwork and through other practices such as memory walks, and also what I was able to uh, notice engaging with memory of activism. And this is back to the memory activism nexus, the memory of activism, again, in a society, in societies in the whole region that glorify uh, war criminals, uh, memory of activism, what I understood was that they have to now, uh, uh, if, they would, don't want, if they want to resist this glorification of war criminals, they have to find their own heroes, right? And so going back to trace and, and unfold the actions of the first generation of uh, uh, memory activists who were anti-war activists during the 90s, it means to sort of engage with remembering the legacies of the anti-war uh, activism that took place in um, uh, not only Belgrade, but more broadly in Serbia to educate themselves about it and to uh, engage with uh, what was done and how it was done 
as well to learn from the mistakes of the past, but also to sort of uh, engage engage with that as memory of activism. So I'm gonna. I was gonna ask you. Well, how can you discover a mass grave in the heart of the capital and not have that generated discussion? So it wasn't discovering the heart of the capital. Uh, one of the mass graves that were disco- uh, discovered in 2001 was in Batenita, which is actually uh, you you in the U.S. you would call it in the suburbs of the city. So it's about 20 kilometers out of the city center. Right. And one of the, and this was uh, discovered in 2001, sparked at the time some uh, discussions and very fast went into oblivion. And uh, these are the practices of silencing the past, of course. Uh, but isn't, I mean, is that, uh, isn't there uh, media coverage or is that reined in or how does that, how does that work? There was media coverage of the time, at the time, both uh, internationally and locally. And even later, there were more mass graves that were discovered in uh, other parts, in South Serbia, uh, mostly. And it uh, it sort of comes to the surface and very fast uh, goes away and uh, being silenced. Uh, as as I try to argue, that's based on what activists themselves tell me. These are unwanted pasts, right? So they the activists themselves sort of I borrow this idea from the activists themselves when they show how in their own actions is so difficult to engage with some of these uh, issues from. Uh, the past as there's no uh, will and uh, a framework in the society to uh, engage with that. Part of it has to do with uh, fatigue. Part of it has to do with uh, layers of apathy of people who needed to protect themselves maybe from knowing. And part of it has to do with the memory politics as has been... uh, created and uh, administrated uh, in um, the last decade, say, since uh, the year 2000, right? And so, in a way, when when the uh, activists, uh, one of the things I discuss in the book is uh, what uh, the memory walks. And I joined one of the memory walks of the Center for uh, Public history when they invite young people or educators or students to join them in memory walks. So they do memory walks in Belgrade, for example, for to remember the anti-war activism, and they also uh, uh, did memory walks to this direction of the site where the mass graves were found. Uh, in Batainitsa. it's there's no access to this place because uh, um, it's in a, a place of a, a police uh, base inside but they are going they're, they're inviting people to sort of walk take this walk to see to imagine the distance from the city center and to tell them about the narrative of what uh, what actually happened and what led to these uh, crimes uh, in the war in Kosovo. And they attempted also to do an action to erect a a plague or a monument outside of this uh, place, which now, uh, as I uh, discuss in the book, only exists as a sort of digital monument online in the uh, website and uh, online platform that they have created to uh, it's called the Batainitsa Memorial Initiative. Okay. So you have a whole chapter on digital activism and is this this does this pertain more towards uh, more to the the younger generation? It, this this is another dimension, another resource available to them. Yes. So actually uh, we can speak of course about the digital turn in the social sciences and then there's the works uh, on the digital turn in uh, memory studies, um, the digital turn for me happened as I was doing uh, one of the uh, uh, 
sort of periods of my research and I just became, I, I started stumbling upon engagement with actions and engagement online on social media with these alternative calendars that I've mentioned and also with the narratives and with engaging with online platforms as another place to sort of a claim and engage with the production of alternative uh, knowledge. And so I, I started following that and uh, actually uh, came to think about the framework that I put forward in the book of hashtag memory activism, right? And uh, uh, sort of I, I tried to argue that this framework can allow us to trace the growing prevalence of digital memory activism but also of online uh, commemorations and commemorative events on social media, right? And so the, the hashtag memory activism I, I approach as the online commemoration of contested pasts on social media as activists are utilizing hashtag as a mnemonic practice. And then I also came to think about it as a mnemonic tactics, right? And the... Uh, uh, what I do is I took a number of hashtags and I analyze each of them as a case study. And that allows me uh, as the framework to trace the genealogies of the hashtag. Sometimes it's one person who came with the idea and took it into an organization that allowed it to be used and mobilized more uh, broadly. Sometimes it's uh, the organization itself that came up uh, with hashtags, sometimes, sometimes they happen ad hoc because of the banning or of some event. But it allows us also kind of to delve deeper into um, the engagement of activists with uh, memory politics in their societies and with other venues to do action, especially when a, a certain event or commemorative event is being banned from the street of uh, their cities. Yeah, so you offer some examples of where you have certain events that are banned and it's through hashtag activism that you're able to mobilize people and make commemorations possible. Yeah, and in that sense, the, the aim of the activists is never just to stay online, right? It's, it circulates back and their aim is for that to circulate back to the street. And so the first hashtag that I... Uh, uh, began to to trace and study was the Dan uh, Traka, the White Armband Day, and that was um, just briefly an event that was uh, it was an attempt of activists in Bosnia Herzegovina, actually in the town of Priador, to commemorate the twentieth anniversary to the crimes committed against non-Serb communities in Priador, that is today in Republika Srpska in Bosnia Herzegovina, and they were banned from uh, um, getting together uh, in the street, and actually their claim was also to erect a monument in memory of the uh, kids that were killed uh, in Priador, and so what they did was from a one man. Uh, uh, standing in the street where he's kind of uh, uh, in spite of the ban he was uh, Emir Hodzic who was standing on his own uh, um, in the main square in Priador they took this image and this goes viral online and they uh, managed to I actually traced uh, this is another text before the book with my colleague Katerina Ristich, where we traced how uh, this event became a transnational even in the uh, participation of uh, people from uh, all around the world, but also from the region in commemorating uh, uh, the White Armband Day, which uh, sort of, uh, and there's like a, a whole engagement with that online when people put the arm band, the white uh, band on their arm as to resemble the call for people to mark, to, for non-Serbs to uh, mark their houses. 
uh, to um, diasporic communities, but also other members of other communities who participated uh, for a few years, I would say, with this online action on May 31st. And May 31st eventually becomes one of those days that, at least in Serbia, is an alternative day on an alternative calendar. And fast forward a few years after that, uh, sort of very strong anti-denial a campaign, it goes back to the streets, right? Uh, through uh, different groups like uh, Jeremy Tice and other groups who are particip- who have participated in this street action. And uh, nowadays there's still some remains of it online, but it's mostly um, back to the streets. And so other events, a band event was also here in Belgrade, the 20th anniversary of uh, Srebrenica, which was banned and eventually a, a, a smaller number of activists went online, and, uh, went uh, to the street uh, through online mobilization to commemorate the 20th anniversary. Okay. And then you also have the not my hero hashtag, right? That uh, is a way of, of challenging how, uh, how Serbs who've been convicted by the international uh, criminal tribunal uh, for the former Yugoslavia were basically forgiven and reintegrated and sometimes given but high positions in the Serbian governments. It's a way of challenging that and, and, and maybe even proposing other other uh, heroes who would be more legitimate in their eyes right and so the not our heroes is uh, very interesting it's twofolded one hour is a generational belonging right the young uh, the younger the what they call the second generation the younger generation that has no uh, necessarily living memories of the wars but it's also a regional hashtag and there actually it, it came about the uh, through again tracing the works of the youth initiative for human rights with their regional presence in their offices they have presence in uh, belgrade zagreb in sarajevo in pristina and in uh, podgorica one of their actions was to stand in these cities in sort of uh, recognize places with a sign and the hashtag not our hero uh, in Pristina in Albanian and the rest of the region in, uh, if you want, Serbo-Croatian, claiming these are not our heroes and we don't want to celebrate them as uh, heroes, but to uh, remember them as uh, war criminals. And this this wasn't only in Serbia. We saw a process um, of the beginning of the release of some of the uh, convicted uh, uh, personalities who uh, got to go home after serving some time uh, in jail, uh, uh, sometimes earlier, earlier, earlier release, sometimes not, coming back to their societies and being received as and celebrated and uh, we saw it in Croatia, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, in Serbia, as well as Kosovo, and some of them even became sort of very important, regained public uh, uh, space in their uh, societies, um, becoming famous, sharing their uh, their writings and being invited to uh, public events. And yes, it culminated uh, uh, in some events here in Serbia, even during uh, campaigns before uh, elections, but it was pretty much a, a regional phenomenon that we saw uh, war criminals coming back and becoming even celebrities, right? Um, and, and, and so in many ways that also sort of uh, uh, promoted my thinking about the region as a region of memory. Right, and that in a way, this uh, uh, fight—if we think of memory activism as as the claim to um, engage with the past for a better future or for more uh, uh, justice—this is one uh, strand of memory activism. There's also memory activism on the very right-wing uh, activists, but in that strand. 
uh, I sort of understood it as uh, needing to understand a region, the region as region of memory and a region of memory activism. So a claim like not our heroes is not just on the national level, it's, it's, a, it's a more broader engagement on the region itself. To me, that's the hopeful part of your book, that you may have uh, countries that are narrowing their understanding of the past in ways that don't do a whole lot to promote reconciliation, understanding, or any effort to confront the past. But you have these grassroots initiatives where people are, are preserving a memory of what happened, they're challenging denial, and they're working across borders. Uh, uh, and I think that's that's really where you finish your your book, and and there are real changes that come out of it. There are events that uh, that uh, were banned that uh, uh, become possible. There's collaboration, uh, significant collaboration, and and new commemorations. Uh, there's a lot of real uh, uh, lasting work that that comes comes out of uh, whether it's digital memory work or you mentioned these different. Um, uh, regional platforms uh, for for confronting the past uh, as a region. Right, and for me, I would put forward uh, sort of uh, I, you know how do you trace how do you how do we study how do we uh, analyze how do we research empathy as a political practice, right or uh, acknowledgement. I mean, these are the if you want the ingredients of reconciliation, but which I'm, I'm very interested in. Um, and so I had to think about um, incorporating hope into the discussions on memory uh, memory politics. And I also thought about it very much in that uh, framework of commemorative solidarity, right, which I also uh, uh, tried to take forward from a previous work but at, by Athena Atanasio, who wrote about the women in black in, uh, in uh, Serbia. And so this establishment of the platforms for alternative commemoration as sort of uh, allowing us and allowing activists uh, to come together in networks of commemorative solidarity to trace also to to show camaraderie, uh, let's say, with the other uh, community, and in that sense, it, yes, it it's 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 cannot happen on the local level nor on the national level only. Orly, I really want to thank you for for sharing so much time in your evening. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your thoughts. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Orly Friedman is a professor in the Faculty of Media and Communications at Singodunum University in Belgrade. I've been talking with her today about her recent book, Memory Activism and Digital Memory Practices After Conflict, Unwanted Memories. Next month, we'll turn to the story of digital memories of dictatorship in Brazil. We'll hear from O Globo journalist Leda Balbino, about how former President Jair Bolsonaro and his sons use social media platforms such as YouTube and Twitter to propagate conservative memories of the period of dictatorship in Brazil. My conversation with Leda will focus on a recent book, Digital Memory in Brazil, a fragmented and elastic negationist remembrance of the dictatorship. If you'd like to receive a free Realms of Memory podcast t-shirt, send a screenshot of your Apple or Spotify podcast review to realms of memory podcast at gmail.com and the best entry after each new episode will receive a free t-shirt you can see a preview of the t-shirts on the podcast instagram page i'm rick dadarian thanks again for listening 